we need about 100 grand and we made that up partly from my parents and from a local guy who just believed in us and I remember having a conversation with him he was like is this going to work <laughs> we're like well, yeah, we're confident <laughs> but it was super risky and he believed in us and gave us the cash that we needed to see us through otherwise it would have ended at that point Ready to raise capital? It's time to get your dose of investment insights with the Investment Fix podcast. Brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Kia ora, my name is Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of Investment at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Today on the Investment Fix, we're going to be talking with two New Zealand companies that have chosen to use an online funding platform to raise capital for their growth. So with me to talk about why they opted for this form of funding and what the investment process involved are Rua Bioscience Kaihotu and co-founder Manu Kadi and Zephyr Cider founder and chief executive Josh Townsend. Kia ora and welcome Manu and Josh. Kia ora Dylan. Good morning. Right, having and delivering in an elevator pitch is often something investors look for. So can we start by hearing yours? Rua Bioscience is a pharmaceutical company based in New Zealand with global aspirations to be innovators in plant science and cannabis-derived pharmaceuticals. We've got a clear social mission, delivering opportunities for the community that founded us and creating sustainable economic opportunities around the country. Awesome. And Josh? So Zephyr, we make New Zealand's best cider and seltzer. Based in Hawke's Bay, we pride ourselves on using freshly crushed Hawke's Bay apples to craft our beverages. We have been around for more than 10 years. We started with a 3,000 litre trial batch selling back at the Matakana Farmers Market and currently we produce over a million litres of New Zealand cider and seltzer. Classic Kiwi story, started with little money and a lot of grit, but we're really proud of the achievements we've made along the way. And we're also incredibly proud to be named the manufacturer of the world's best cider at the most prestigious cider awards in the UK a few years ago. That's ever. Fantastic. So just to give some context to those listening, can you tell us a bit about your history and your growth journey to date? Sure. We began in 2015, the charitable company and the community looking for opportunities for job creation. It's a fairly remote part of the country, high unemployment, and most of the whanau have moved off the land. Industries locally are forestry and farming, dry stock farming, and neither of them are particularly good for the environment. So we were looking for higher value industry that could create sustainable employment and be better for the environment. We started looking at native bioactives from indigenous organisms. Networks continuing on, but in 2016, someone asked if we'd thought about growing hemp and we knew that there was a lot of expertise in our community around cannabis cultivation. So something that we we looked into, we saw the opportunity in the global market with liberalisation and markets opening around the world. We saw the New Zealand regulations relaxing around cannabis and in particular medical cannabis. So yeah, we decided to give it a go. Then we got a licence, a research licence later in 2018. But our first crop of hemp was in 2016-17. And while it's been the second or third cab off the rank really compared to the indigenous organisms, cannabis moved the fastest. And so we spun out its own company, Rural Bioscience, and haven't looked back. So the other things are carrying on, but this one's definitely moving fastest, very fast. And what about you, Josh? Zephyr started out of the drive to create a better, more premium cider that was made using real apples as opposed to concentrate or sugars or anything like that. So our founders, Sam and Hannah, basically set out on a mission to craft something uniquely Kiwi, drier, lower in sugar. And 
it was sold as a, a typical Kiwi farmer's market brand. It was sold exclusively through the Matakana farmer's market, where we built a very loyal fan base just north of Auckland. And we originally had no real cash in the business. We were bootstrapping it, working for free, going door to door and just doing the hard graph, which you have to do in those early days, essentially trying to prove that we had a concept that was viable. And since then, we've grown pretty rapidly year on year. And we're now in our third cidery, which is based in Hawke's Bay. So we moved from Matakana to Silverdale and then Silverdale to Hawke's Bay because that's where we were accessing all of our raw ingredients. And now we've got the ability to really scale up without compromising on the integrity of the product. So we've got an excellent apple supply. We're in the fruit bowl of New Zealand. We've got a pretty large cidery, formerly a winery, which we've converted into a cidery. And this year we'll produce over a million litres of liquid. We've got the intention to take that over 4 million litres in the coming years. We're predominantly a New Zealand brand. We're about 80 to 85% domestic, but we've also just recently made a big push into Australia through Woolworths Group. And we've got quite a successful export market in China as well. Hey, now, before we talk about crowdfunding, can you tell me how you funded your earliest stages of Ruhr and Zephyr? Through hard work and not paying ourselves very much, to be honest, in, the, in those very early years. We had a bank facility which allowed us to buy a Apple Press. And we basically relied on growth to fund our working capital and everything involved with that. In those early years, we were always cash strapped and it was just the nature of the business. And basically that hindered the rate of our growth until we brought on capital in the later stages. So in those early years, we're really figuring a lot of things out. We weren't trying to grow too quickly. We were just trying to establish that we had a product that people wanted. Looking back on it, I would do it very differently now. I would capitalize a business early and grow faster. But I think hindsight's a great thing. And really in those early years, it was about learning and finding our feet. As people who have done that will understand business is much easier if you've got good backing and good cash in the bank. And you can do things that might have taken five years in one year. But when it's your first venture and you're just finding your feet, I think you do want to prove to yourself that you can do it on your own. And then probably if it all goes well, future ventures will be a little bit easier to access capital and begin with a bit of a base. And what about you, Manu? Pretty similar. I worked for a couple of years for nothing, supported by my wife and had a good friend who got in early and emptied his KiwiSaver account and borrowed some money off another friend. Those funds really got us going. We ran out of money a few months before the crowdfund was due to happen and we were really lucky to get a loan. We needed about a hundred grand and we made that up partly from my parents who were able to chipping a bit and from a local guy who just believed in us. And I remember having a conversation with him. He's like, is this going to work? <laughs> like, we're, we're confident, <laughs> but it, it was super risky. And, and he believed in us and gave us the cash that we needed to see us through and we'll be forever grateful to him. Otherwise it would have ended at that point pretty much. So yeah, that's how we survived before crowdfunding. Amazing. Now I want to dig into some of your early decision-making as a founder. So let's start with why. Why crowdfunding? And then how did you determine that was the right time to raise capital? Our first crowdfunding was in 2017 and we always resisted it because it was a very public display of your plan. It was something you felt that your competitors could really dive into. You're putting yourself out there to a great deal of risk and public scrutiny. We looked through it and we had a lot of people wanting to invest small parcels of money and we decided we might as well raise a large parcel in one hit. So that was a 1.2 million raise, which at the time was a lot of money to us. We were an under 2 million revenue business and we realised that all the reasons we were resisting it were just because we were scared. There was actually no reason not to do it other than that we were a bit scared to put ourselves out there. And it felt like the right time for us. We'd gained a little bit of traction in New Zealand. We had an opportunity to relocate the operation from Silverdale to Hawke's Bay. And so it felt like the right time for us to put Zephyr out there and build a core group of investors and followers and actually just take a bit of a plunge. The main presentations were, you know, you're a bit worried 
failure. What if your business plan is just rejected by the investment market? But we just got stuck in and put a lot of work into our information memorandum and our story and how we were going to achieve our targets. At the time, it was Snowball's fastest ever capital race. It was fully allocated in four days. After that, you wonder what all the fear was about. But going into it, we were absolutely packing ourselves. (laughs) And why crowdfunding as opposed to other different options like angel network or high net worth individuals? What drove you down the crowdfunding process? We're a consumer brand, so it made sense for us to build a loyal core group of smaller shareholders. So I think the average investment in our first raise was $8,000. We had some people who put in significant investment, but we had a really long tail of small followers who became our fans and our advocates in market. Bank funding for us wasn't an option. We didn't have the financials that banks were going to back us as a small business. One high net worth individual, it felt like a lot to, it would have been a big gamble from one person to do that. And we didn't have that opportunity in front of us. And then Angel Networks, I think we're looking for something a little bit bigger than where we were at the time. For us, we were the right size. We were the right revenue size. And we were a a branded product that thrives off a, a loyal following. So those things aligned. And when we met with Snowball Effect, it was the right fit and the right time for us to go down that path. And Manu, for Rua, why crowdfunding? Yeah, I guess it came back to the philosophy of the company and really wanting to keep it locally owned. It was our mission to make this thing in Ruatoria and prove to the world that a successful company could be based here and give the community not only a sense of ownership, but a real ownership and stake in the thing. That was sort of the main reason we needed cash. We knew it was going to be expensive and we had uh, strong support around the country. We'd sort of been telling our story what we wanted to do, but we really wanted to give locals the opportunity first. So we had a roadshow series around the coast and small meetings with people in different villages. And we did that January 2018. And then by May 2018, we were ready and went out and we raised 1.4 million in five days across the coast in those meetings. So basically you had to be at those meetings to invest. You weren't able to do it anywhere else in the in the country. And if we turned around and gone back up the coast, I think we would have filled the two million. But we'd made a commitment to the rest of the country that we were going to give them a chance. We knew we were going to need more than two million and that institutional investors weren't going to want to deal with a thousand or two thousand crowdfunding investors in the mix. So that's why we set up that other entity and it's worked really well for us. And now I want to switch tack a little bit. I want to talk about the process, the experience you had in the process and some of the decision making. How did you determine how much you needed to raise and what level of detail did you go into before determining this? We've done three capital raises and they've all had a slightly different flavour to them around private and crowdfunding investment. But the first raise we did in 2017, it all fell out of the plan we created. We realised that we needed X dollars to relocate the business to provide working capital and, and provide marketing dollars for growth. So we really built that out in our information memorandum and said, if we raise, I think our range was 700,000 to 1.2. That was the minimum was 700 and the max was 1.2. We said if we raise 700,000, this is how our plan will adapt to cater for that. And if we raise a maximum of 1.2, this is what we'll do with the dollars. So for us, it was pretty prescriptive. There's certain capex that we needed to invest into. There was the relocation of the cider and then there's marketing funds of growth. So we listed that out line by line where the dollars was going and it ended up being very accurate to what we suspected. Looking back, we had three raises, all for different reasons and all slightly different splits. So we had the retail, we had the wholesale retail, and then our most recent one was largely just existing shareholders. So that's collectively, my maths is somewhere accurate, probably around 5 million. Whereas in 2017, we set out to raise 1.2 and thought that was going to be plenty. I think the key takeaway is it's always going to take a bit longer and it's always going to cost a bit more than you think. So just be prepared for that and be prepared for some of the slog that that involves as well and stick with it. 
And what about you, Manu? How did you determine how much you were going to raise? Two million is the maximum you're allowed to raise in any 12-month period through crowdfunding in New Zealand. We knew we were going to need more, so that was just the first part. And we'd been talking to institutional investors. So these are mostly high net worth individuals, some managed funds, some KiwiSaver funds had been interested. So we had an investment broker, Northington Partners, who helped us find these potential institutional investors. And the feedback we got was, do you crowdfunding raise then talk to your institutional investors about their commitments. And through that process, there's probably about 20 expressions of interest. We shortlisted 10 and interviewed them, like a job interview, and found two that we felt were really aligned with our values, who understood what we were trying to do and had both expertise that we could use. So it wasn't just the cash, it was what's their business experience and acumen that's going to contribute to the company's development. And yeah, who were going to go on a journey with us and had deep pockets. So if we needed to go back to them, uh, probably things were going well, able to continue supporting us. And that's the way it's worked out. We needed to go back to them a wee while later and they contributed some more, which was awesome. And we also found some other institutionals who came on on the basis that the direction we were heading in was towards an IPO and they could likely see an uplift in their investment down the track somewhere. So that's sort of the journey we've been on. And then October 2020, we listed on the NZX and through that process raised another 20 million. So I think we raised 16 million pre-IPO and another 20 at IPO. And that set us up well. As I say, you know, there's a, a lot of unexpected cost compared to two or three years ago when we were starting out and what we thought we could do it on. It wasn't quite the smell of an oily rag, but it was sort of around the $5 million mark. We were confident we'd be able to set up this pharmaceutical company and take on the world, be exporting to Germany and wherever. As it turns out, we've needed well over $20 million and this is going to help us get there and we're just moving towards the start line of exports to, to Germany next year. So that's uh, the time frames, two or three years and 36 odd million dollars later, we're getting close to the start line. Which brings us to some issues that all founders and owners need to grapple with, and that's valuation and coming to grips with the stake you're going to have to sell down as part of it. So how did you approach valuation and then determine what stake you were going to give up? We really picked a number out of the sky. It was looking at what other companies had put their value at, knowing what we had, knowing our position in the market relative to potential competitors and things. Floated it with some industry people, both investment bankers and those in the cannabis sector who had experience overseas, and tried to come up with what we thought was realistic. And that was totally validated again through the crowdfund. And also we did talk to institutional investors before we went out with the crowdfund and they didn't walk it, the figure that we put on the value based on where we got to to date. So we did some triangulation in the validation process and went forward with that and seemed to work. It's interesting, eh? Because crowdfunding like IPOs, that valuation is just a bit more public than other forms of capital raising. Particularly pre-revenue, it's really hard to value a company. And so it's definitely more of an art than a science. But having those experts around us to give input on to that, to make it sure it was realistic. And we've seen what I think are kind of ridiculous valuations, particularly in cannabis. So I think, again, it's about being realistic and not trying to be stupid or you just won't be successful. In it. What about you, Josh? How did you approach it? Very similar thoughts to Manu on that process. We got as much external feedback as possible. I am just very wary of the experts in this process because there's no template for a pre-revenue, low-revenue or unprofitable business. So it's really about how confident you are in achieving the story that you've put in front of people. 
you don't want to overvalue the company, but also you really don't want to undervalue the business because you are going to need to raise capital again, probably 99 out of 100 times. If it's your first capital raise, you will be going back to investors. But you also need to live by what you've put out there. So ultimately, uh, a business is about creating value for your shareholders. And if you value your business too highly and you can't create that value, whether it be dividends or an exit, or a listing, then you've failed to deliver and bring those people along and provide value for the people that have backed you. So I think there's a fine line. The perception of crowdfunding is that it can be a great way to inflate your valuation, but I would really disagree with that way of thinking. I think you need to be able to look your friends, family, investors in the eye and say, I believe we can create value for you. Yes, it's very risky as all small businesses are, but if you're purely just trying to avoid dilution and inflate valuation, I think that's really the wrong approach. Even if people are willing to pay that, you still need to deliver and see the company through to some form of exit or dividend. It's a really tricky one and you talk to five different people, you'll get five different answers. If you go right down the mathematical path, it's kind of irrelevant because you're a small high growth business. So it's just getting lots of reference points and then deciding as a board or a senior management team where you feel comfortable, what the comfort level is, and then putting your plan together to show how that is going to provide value. That's a fantastic point. Was there any planning done to ensure this round was going to fit in with your long-term capital plans and you weren't trying to over-dilute shareholdings? And did you seek any specific advice on that side of things? We started with a philosophy of it's better to be a smaller part of a bigger thing than a big part of something that doesn't go anywhere because it's got an overinflated sense of itself. You know, while that was hard because we wanted to see the community have as big a stake as possible, we quickly had to accept that the community wasn't going to be in control of this company. We needed more capital than the community was able to contribute. There were also those risks I talked about and we needed to move fast. So we were going to be relying on angel investors and venture capital to come in as soon as we'd got that crowdfunding. And in many ways, the crowdfunding validated things for those institutional investors. We were lucky we had a bunch that we could pick from and found some good partners there. But yeah, we wanted to be realistic in what we were putting to them and we could see that there was going to be a pathway that we were likely to have to continue to go back to investors in the first couple of years as we understood there's just so much uncertainty in our industry, which wasn't even an industry at that point. There was no legislation. There were no models in New Zealand that we could really base our plans on. So it was hugely speculative and it was really building the plane as we were trying to fly it. And you've recently just completed an IPO on the NZX. Was that in your plans when you were doing the original crowdfund or has that happened since? No, we were hugely optimistic and wildly underinformed. There was just no way to know where things were going. But shortly after that, it became apparent that we would need significant capital. And so we really pursued two parallel paths, one looking for a strategic investor who was already in the sector, particularly an overseas company that was looking to acquire or have a stake in things, or an IPO was the other option. And that was my least preferred one. I felt like giving the thing away when we were trying to retain the ownership and particularly the values and the commitment to the community. I was really worried about the the IPO process. As it turns out, we've been able to build that DNA into the company so that those investors in the IPO knew what they're investing in and support hopefully those values. And we'll see that shift over time, but we've also been able to make sure that there's a significant portion of the company that's retained in the, the original shareholdings and And those people really are committed and they appoint the board and things and today and have been committed to those goals that we set, the social mission of the 
company. So yeah, it wasn't really in the scheme of things from my perspective, but it quickly became apparent that we'd need to find a larger investor. As it turns out globally, and particularly in Canada, where the big money's been sitting in the cannabis industry, that's kind of imploded in the last 18 months. And those companies are in big trouble because they've overcapitalized and facilities and so on. So the cash hasn't been there. And while many of them were going on a big spending spree around the world, that's quickly retracted and they're divesting themselves of those companies that they had put money into outside of Canada and North America. It's a big change in the last 12 months. And Josh, was there any long-term capital planning for you leading up to that crowdfunding? And did you seek any outside advice at that point in time? It's a really tricky one because you look at 1.2 million for us as a small business and thought all your problems were going to be solved or that all your capital problems were going to be solved and then growth was going to fund growth and et cetera, et cetera. You always need more capital than you think. And I think you're almost always going to be re-raising capital because growth is expensive. It's actually the most expensive part of the business. So we didn't have a really defined capital runway because our revenue was growing pretty quickly, sort of 50 to 100% per annum, and we're making these big moves. So we didn't detail out a capital runway map, but we did inform our investors that we anticipated future capital raises as part of that journey. So even though you may need, say, $4 million over the next few years, it doesn't mean you need to raise it all in one go. It can be a better approach to raise 1 to 1.5, prove that your strategy is working, and then you can re-raise at a higher valuation because you've validated that plan. So I think there's a balancing act there between your longer-term capital requirements and proving that you can execute to a short-term plan because as the company grows year on year and you actually achieve your goals and hit your targets, your valuation is going to increase really quickly. So although you don't want to overvalue your company early on, you also don't want to overcapitalize it early on and give away too much when you could have given away less once you've actually proven your model. Independent governance is a really important part of what investors look for in businesses. It gives them some comfort. Talk to us about the role that governance played in your capital raise journey. Before our 2017 raise, we ran a board of directors, but very much it was the shareholders, our directors, and the management team were directors. And it was a very stripped back version of the board. We did all of our legal requirements and we operated board, but we really didn't understand the value of a properly governed board of directors. We established that just before our 2017 raise. And I think that was a really important step to provide comfort for shareholders that it's not just a management team making all of the big decisions. It's actually a properly governed and chaired board where the high level strategic decisions of the business are debated. There's a lot of responsibilities, particularly in our industry around health and safety, a lot of legal responsibilities, all sorts that you need an experienced director to bring to the table. So we appointed a chairman and set up our board. And when we sought one of our strategic investors, their investment came with the seat on the board as well, which has added another level of experience governance. So we have two independent directors, our chairman, Mike Brown, and then a director, Tim Crisp. And then we have three executive directors, myself, our CFO, Greg, and one of our founders and HR uh, manager, Hannah. So that's a nice balance where you've got a split of some management and some external governance experience. It provides you really good discipline in terms of preparing for board meetings, all of your reporting structures and all of your delegation authorities. So everyone knows where they stand in terms of being able to make a decision or, or take a decision to the board. It just provides a really good overarching discipline to the business, which flows right through the company. So we've gained massive benefit from it. As some businesses told me, it can be a a roadblock to innovation and growth. It hasn't been that at all. It's just enhanced some areas which we were weaker in and really a good board will let the management team get on and grow the business while provide the structures and resource in those other important areas. It's been a great thing for us. I'd really encourage 
any small business to seek out some good directors. And there's some very experienced directors who want to give back to small businesses who have a wealth of knowledge and resources and connections. Great point. I'm keen to hear some reflections now about the process. When you think back to your first crowdfunding raise, what were the biggest challenges you found? Preparing for the raise was a massive process. We kicked off our crowdfunding early March and we'd made the call in December, press go on it. And then on January the 2nd, I remember sitting down and trying to figure out this thing called an information memorandum and basically write that out. And so it is a really intense process, particularly your first one, because you don't have a platform. And although someone like a snowball effect gives you a massive amount of support, you still have to get in there and and do the work yourself. So it basically became my full-time job outside of trying to grow the business. It was my full-time job to prepare and execute the capital raise. It's a huge amount of distraction and, and quite fast new learning. But from January the 2nd, right through to the close of our capital raise, 90% of my time was focused on the capital raise. And for me, it was always about never assuming that it was going to be successful and never leaving a stone unturned of how we could market the raise and ensure we could get as much interest as possible. And that a lot of that came down to our digital campaign, working with a good PR agency on our comms, a lot of investor meetings, a lot of roadshows, just a lot of effort to market and grow the opportunity to invest in Zephyr. And to someone who's going into their first raise, I would just not underestimate how much of a distraction that's going to be. And you have to think about who's going to resource your business while someone is owning that, because otherwise in those three, four months, you could be dropping the ball on a lot of things while all your attention is just on getting this capital in the bank. Great point. What about you, Manu? The biggest challenges for us, Panapra and I have no real business experience. So it was a whole new world, a new lexicon of concepts and terms, acronyms we didn't really understand and things. So it was trying to get our head around that. And I suppose the way we handled that was having the philosophy and commitment to always paying for the best advice that we could find. So having really good lawyers and really good investment advisors that held our hand through the process was critical and that paid off. It's easy to sort of think, oh, 500 bucks an hour for a lawyer is ridiculous, but actually they earn their money and the, the advice that comes back, that was how we overcame that challenge, I suppose, and just had to learn fast about how investment works and probably made some mistakes in that process that I'd change if we went back again. But those feel like the biggest challenges were the uncertainty and the lack of our experience in the business world and particularly in investment. Well, that's a good segue because I'm after one piece of advice now. One thing you'd do differently or one piece of advice that you wish you had when you started that capital raise process? Yeah, we certainly had the advice. I'm not sure I listened to it from our lawyer. (laughs) So we can pay for the best lawyers, but unless you're going to follow their advice, it doesn't mean a lot. But we had a letter of intent from a company purporting to have a major supply arrangement for us. If we could provide them with the product, they'd sell it and we'd have that significant income, which we put in our IM, our investment memorandum, with lots of caveats around it saying, this is just a letter of intent. And our lawyer said, you know, it's probably not worth the paper that it's written on. So while we put those caveats in there and said, this is a tentative non-binding agreement, people took that as they've got a deal and looks great. And we've been hammered by some of the business media since then. That's long ago now. And we've got some better deals in place, but we still, you know, they keep dragging that one up to say, these guys put that in the original AM. And so I think it's so much better if you can sell the opportunity without having to put unrealistic expectations in there. So that's the big temptation. And I wish we hadn't put that in there now, but would we have been successful if we hadn't? I'm I'm not sure. 
And what about you, Josh? One piece of advice, one thing you wish you'd done differently. It's a really tough one. I still struggle with the $500 an hour for Lloyd's money, by the way. I was still focused on that point. I think a real understanding that this will be the first raise of several and just preparing for that. It's not going to solve all your problems and it's not going to be the only time you need to introduce capital or introduce investors. So just understand that there is a capital runway required and that growth is expensive and that this will be most likely it will be one of many. So just be prepared for that. Great advice. Hey, now I would love to talk about the investors in the crowd in the online platforms. And when we talked to Pledge Me and Snowball Effect in series one of the investment fix, they talked about the real loyalty and the sense of ownership that the crowdfunding investors have towards the companies they invest in. Do you have any experiences of that that you'd like to share? Personally, I love hearing from our investors and we have over 500 investors and it's a remarkably quiet bunch, I have to say. I was expecting a lot more feedback and a lot more interaction, but we always love it when we do hear from our investors. We often get sent photos of people consuming Zephyr in different parts of the world, sometimes that we didn't even know Zephyr was sold in or up on the ski field, anything like that. So it's often product shots, but people do take a real pride in what they've invested in. They become your advocate if they can't see it on their supermarket shelf. They can ask you why not, but we encourage that. It's great. You've got a small army of people out there keeping an eye on your business and it's brilliant. And we make a real effort to keep our investors informed. And to Manu's point, honesty is always the key. So be realistic, be upfront about the challenges that you're facing because everyone who's been involved with the business knows that there are more challenges and wins on a daily basis. And so just accept that sometimes things aren't going to go as well as you hope, but be honest and open about that. And I think if you build up that rapport and that communication with your investors, then there's no surprises for them. And they understand that what you're telling them is transparent and it's just a reflection of what's going on. So just be forthcoming with all the facts and keeping them regularly informed is a great policy. Don't just expect them to sink some savings into your business and then not hear from you for a few years. Understand that that regular update, those quarterly updates are really important and that people do appreciate them and I think they should be expected. Fantastic. What about you, Manu? Yeah, we're probably a bit different in that we're not a consumer brand that people can go and purchase and promote to their friends and things. We had a lot of local support as well as the patient community around the country who are looking for New Zealand-made quality products that were going to be perhaps more affordable and more consistent than some of the imported alternatives. So there's a lot of expectation there. If you talk to most of our crowdfunding investors, they weren't investing for a financial return for themselves. They supported the story of what we're trying to do in the community and could see that this was how we were trying to do it and wanted to back it. In many ways, it was sort of a donation as much as an investment from many of the perspectives. And at the same time, the expectations have been there probably more around the social mission delivering on that rather than the financial returns, which they always knew was going to be some time off as a pharmaceutical company. So yeah, communication's definitely been important and the disclosures are still significant. As Josh said, even in the crowdfunding process, you're telling your competitors and we had some of our competitors become shareholders in the company so that they could keep appraised of developments as we went along. So that's a challenge to be open and transparent with those people who trusted their money to you while also protecting information that's commercially sensitive and walking that fine line. But very loyal and they hit me up regularly at the Foursquare when I do my shopping to ask how the company's going and ask how many people we've employed and when we're going to be selling products and so forth. So it's a good opportunity to build a loyal customer base. And I think for most companies, that is a great opportunity to have those brand ambassadors around the country who can be talking about your company and your products on a daily basis with their workmates and friends and family. 
That's a great point. In a crowdfunding situation, you're not often able to select your investors in the same way you could an angel or a venture capital fund. So was there anything you did to ensure that your investors were the right fit for your business? In the first raise, it was an entirely public raise. So we did shoulder tap certain individuals who we wanted to become a part of Zephyr before the raise opened. So I think it's important to get your baseline investment established. For the public raise, we have no control over who invests, and that's fine. At that level, when you're putting it out there to a retail perspective, you just have to accept that your competitors are going to see what you're doing. Your competitors may well become shareholders, and I think that's where your quarterly updates. It's important to give a summary, not too much of a dive into your future plans, particularly around MPD or anything, because in our industry, it's incredibly competitive, and there's a lot of copycats out there. When we did subsequent capital raises, we did feel that there was an opportunity to get some strategic investors on board. And that's where we had strategic investment lined up. For example, one of New Zealand's largest Apple processors was actually an introduction from NZTE. So we ensured that we could facilitate their shareholding and their investment because there's nothing better than a vested interest and a strategic shareholder to help you grow your business. So we've leaned on that as an approach for subsequent raises. And the other benefit you get once you've done your first crowdfunding is you create liquidity in your shares. So if you have an approach from someone, for an example, a distributor, a partner offshore, whoever it may be, if you have an approach that they would like to invest, then you have a stake in the ground valuation and you have the opportunity to say to investors, does anyone want to look to exit or people just organically come to you and say, I'm looking to exit the business or I need to free up some dollars. And then you can make an introduction and facilitate a trade. So we've been really lucky with several of our investors. They've actually been key partners of ours either through the supply of raw ingredients or in the market access distribution piece. And I've added massive value to our business. So the liquidity that the initial raise provided us just kept on giving us benefits in terms of being able to bring people into the business. And what about you, Manu? You talked about the work you did to get the local community to participate as part of that. Was there anything else you did to ensure that your investors were the right fit for your business? We didn't give them any voting rights, so they really did have to believe in the (laughs) co-papa and trust us. And they were only allowed to sell their shares to other shareholders or to someone who has whakapapa to the East Coast. So extremely restrictive terms. And again, we were trying to keep control as much as we could at a local level. And that helped us ensure that as much as we could, we were getting investors who believed in the cause and what we were trying to do and would support those priorities going forward. It was risky putting all of that on them, but obviously there was enough support and we found those people willing to invest under those conditions. It's a really good point that money made around investor rights. So that is a way to ensure that you retain control amongst your key shareholders as you only allow voting rights for your shares above a certain investment level. So any retailer investors who are investing, for example, less than $100,000, they may not be voting right shares. And so when you are making big decisions for the business, those decisions are held by your core investor group and you're not giving away control or really slowing the process around decisions by having hundreds of different voting shareholders that you have to consult. It's a good way to ensure that you can get investment, but you're not giving away too much control in the business. What's next for each of you? Manu, you've just completed an IPO. What does that mean for Rua Bioscience in terms of your growth plans? That means we're well 
capitalised now. It means we have massive compliance and continuous disclosure obligations for the company. We're needing to beef up the finance team and that end of things and our communications has to be on point. There's lots of legal fish hooks if we get that stuff wrong. But it means that we're able to move forward with confidence. We've got a long runway now to get that product to Germany and into other markets potentially. We've just been through our audit with MedSafe to become a medicine manufacturer and that's the next milestone is that certification and getting the first products to market. That's the next steps in our journey, actually bringing some revenue in. So the big milestone will be sustainable revenue, hopefully in a year's time, maybe two years we'll be there, but we've got that runway and the board are very cautious around that, that we don't end up being excessive with our spending all of a sudden because we've got this cash in the bank. We've got to be disciplined, focus on those milestones and get that sustainable revenue in the door so that the company can be self-sufficient going forward. Josh, you raised another round in early 2020. How does that set you up and where's Zephyr heading? For us, it's all about growth. We spent many years and a lot of dollars setting ourselves up to be able to scale up. In the early days, scaling up production was always a real challenge for us. Now we have a fully operational siree with massive production capacity. We're shortly installing a a canning line at our site to accompany our bottling lines. We'll be a fully functional multi-container packaging site. And we have pretty big aspirations to grow our cider and seltzer volume significantly over the coming years. We've recently signed an agreement with Woolworths Australia, which sees three of our products go into 1,600 retail stores in Australia. They're Australia's largest liquor retailer. And we've signed a distribution agreement line in Nathan, New Zealand, which only began in March this year. So we've got good distribution partnerships and we've got good avenues to market. Now it's all about activating the brand and ensuring we can produce enough product to fulfill the demand. So it's an incredibly exciting time for us. With growth comes lots of other pressures, but we are excited and optimistic about what the next few years presents us. Yes, you've both really got good reasons to be optimistic. And sounds like exciting times ahead with big deals in place for Zephyr and an IPO under your belt for Rua. Thank you both so much for sharing your stories and your insights today and for being honest. It's really valuable for companies to hear the truth about that investment and growth journey. We hear it a lot, but it's just so important for people to understand what a huge amount of time and energy goes into capital raising. And you've got to be prepared to do that hard mahi. Takes longer and costs more than you anticipate. It's also been really great to hear your insights on the importance of getting good advice and governance and just persisting to build out and hold on to that vision for your companies. So thanks again. We'll be watching your progress with interest. Kapai. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Manu, for talking with us today. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Dylan. No worries. That was your investment fix from NZTE. For a bigger financial fix, head to investnewzealand.nz.